Good morning. We're continuing in our message series on the, the letters to the seven churches. Question, what, what is Jesus like? What is Jesus like? You know, last week, Pastor Craig, uh, we, we began the seven letters of this uh, Revelation 1 to 3 series. And he exhorted us that um, from the Ephesian church that uh, Jesus takes the posture of a groom exhorting his beloved bride to love him, to just return back to the original love. That's a great question. It's a great, it's a great posture that Jesus took. And, 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 and as I'm looking at the, the next couple letters, letters 2, 3, and 4, I think he shifts and makes, takes a different posture. He takes the posture uh, not of a groom exhorting his beloved bride, but a, a father exhorting his beloved children. One of the interesting things about my life is that... Uh, my mother was my kindergarten teacher. Um, that's my mom. That's her, that, that wasn't her back then. That's her now. <laughs> um, she was one of the first African-American uh, kindergarten teachers in, in Prince George's County. We lived in Seat Pleasant at the time, right across the, the, the line from D.C. And one of the, the, the great things and the interesting things about having your mother as your teacher is that in those days, teachers could discipline you. And when the teacher was your mother, you got as much, you got discipline for everything. And um, you, got it, you got it in the coat room, and then you got it a little bit at home when you got home. Um, the loving discipline of a mother. Um, but it wasn't just my mother that gave us discipline. It was uh, my dad as well. Uh, I remember two, the two biggest spankings of my life. One was the last one. Um, for, 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 you know, my, my sister Renee, my younger sister, we, you know, we played around a lot, and I hit her one day, and, and which we always, but I hit her too hard one time, and she hurt, and she cried, and she told my dad, and my dad gave me the last spanking I ever got at age 14, I believe, and the message was clear, don't hit women. Don't hit them. Keep your hands to yourself. But the other spanking I got, which is even more memorable for me, was about eight or nine years old. Um, I, I've told this story before. I, got, I was stealing at a little convenience store, not for the first time, and I got caught and was embarrassed, and I came home, and my dad gave me the, the mega spanking of my life, the loving discipline. And the message there was clear as well. Again, keep your hands to yourself. Don't touch things that don't belong to you. The hands, interesting. Loving discipline from a father. And from a mother. I was blessed to have great parents. Uh, my mom is still at, with us at age 89. I'm sure today she'll get up in the, and, and get in that car and drive to church and, and pray that she makes it like we always do. <laughs> my dad passed away about 10 years ago this summer. You know, a, a good father cares enough to spend time with you, to encourage you, and to give a needed word of discipline and rebuke. That's what a good father does. And and though my dad is now with the Lord, guess what? I still have a good dad, a great dad, who cares enough for me to give me words of exhortation. And, and the same dad you have is our Heavenly Father. We just heard in, from Hebrews 12, that, that great passage uh, about how the Lord will discipline us. He will, he, he, it shows us that we're truly his children. Uh, think of that truth as we look at these uh, uh, three letters in Revelation chapter 2. We're going to look at Jesus' message to the saints at Smyrna, Pergamus and Tyra Tyra. He's going to exhort, challenge, correct, and make some promises as he does for us. We're going to read each letter as we get to them. 
So let's move along. Uh, king Jesus, king, he's king in Revelation. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. But like any loving father, he exhorts his children to remain faithful. To remain faithful. Faithful to his gospel, faithful to his holy word, faithful to his name, faithful to his holy calling, faithful to him. The title is Fatherly Counsel from King Jesus. Fatherly Counsel from King Jesus. You know, despite the temptations to drift into worldliness, and despite the temptations to be fearful, despite the temptation to become disloyal to the name of Jesus, he exhorts us to remain faithful. He promises to, to the overcomers, to those who endure, to those who overcome, who persevere, who keep on keeping on, who maintain their faith in the face of obstacles. There's promises for those who remain faithful. See, we're all fallen in Adam. We're all, we're all flawed. We're all frail. The scriptures say that all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. And we who have come to faith, we still tend to drift away from faith, don't we? To stray from the narrow road, the road less traveled. And when we fall and drift, and we need to repent, to get up and keep walking. And sometimes God, as a loving father, wisely decides to discipline us when we fall. I want to look at two things in our structure today. I want to look at the Jesus' message to these three churches of Asia Minor. And then Jesus' message, I believe, for one church in Penlusi. That's us. It's us. It's to those churches, but there's something here for us. The three churches, first we have the Smyrna Christian Fellowship. They want to look at the Pergamum Christian Fellowship, and then Tyra Tyra Christian Fellowship. First, Smyrna Christian Fellowship, verses 8 to 11. Let me read this portion of, of the passage of the text. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write... The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Just a couple things about, about, about this Smyrna. The, the, it, was, it was, again, on the ancient postal route. You see the, the map that we've been using. The, this ancient postal route, it, ta it, it, it takes us away from the very cosmopolitan city of Ephesus, northward, to the, to the small city of Smyrna, a very small city. The church's strength. Jesus says, I know. Each of these cities, he's going to first say, I, I know some things about you. He says, I know that you've endured tribulation and physical poverty, though spiritually you're rich. In each church, usually there's a challenge. Jesus mentions the temptations that they face, but there is no rebuke at all to them. They are standing against the false religious competition of satanic persecution is pending and he just says be faithful that's his message to them there's no rebuke at all to this this, this church of Smyrna his promises to the overcomers the second death will not hurt them there's physical death and there is second death physical death the separation of the body and the soul and then there's eternal death separation of the soul from the creator God. And, and for the believer the second death will not be hurt because we've trusted in Christ 
We want to experience the second death. That's the fantastic promise, the fantastic blessing that comes when we embrace the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, that these words to the Christian fellowship of Smyrna, uh, were, 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 they made a difference. There was a man at Smyrna, probably in that congregation at that time, because he's known to be a, a disciple of, of, of John. His name was Polycarp. Maybe you know his testimony. One of the first um, uh, martyrs of the Christian era, the um, post-apostolic era. He, was, he became the future bishop of Smyrna, and when he was challenged to give up his faith, to just not give up his faith, but just to, to, to worship the gods of Rome, he was said, repent, and say, down with the atheists. He was, the atheists, of course, were those who believed in Jesus, you see. He didn't believe in the gods of Rome. Repent and, and say, down with the atheists, he's asked. But Polycarp looked grimly at the wicked heathen multitude in this stadium and gesturing towards them, he said, down with the atheists. So swear, urged the, the, the proconsul, reproach Christ and I will set you free. And Polycarp says, 86 years have I served him and he's done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? And so they burned him at the stake. They burned him. One of the first, he was the first martyr, famous martyr of the, of the Christian era. He was from Smyrna. Jesus warned that persecution was coming. It came. The Christian fellowship of Smyrna. The second one is Pergamum Christian fellowship. Verses 12 to 17. Listen to these verses. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden man, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Pergamum, about 55 miles away from, from, from Smyrna. It was a very proud city. It was a, a political city. It was the capital city of the region. Uh, Michael Wilcock, commentator, says, if Ephesus was the New York of, of Asia, Pergamum was its Washington. Gives you a sense of the, 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 the feel for that city. A city of great governmental activity, but also a heavy dose of dark, satanic activity. The great altar of Zeus. The temple dedicated to Aphrodite, the goddess of sex. And you get a sense of that from verse 13. Satan's throne is mentioned. The church's strength is, he says, I know. They hold fast to Jesus' name. They endure the death of Antipas, one of their leaders, who's called my faithful witness. He's remained faithful. But there is a challenge. There's a strong rebuke. The church's challenge is in verses 14 and following. 
the teaching of Balaam. The major issues there, if you look at Numbers chapter 22, 23, and 24 in the Old Testament, Balaam encouraged the people of Israel in the wilderness to mingle with the nearby pagan nations, uh, embracing their idolatry, engaging in their sexual sins as part of their worship, like the pagan nations around them. And this teaching like that was promoted in this town. In verse 15, the teaching of the Nicolaitans. We saw that all last week, Revelation 2.6. Jesus said to the Ephesians, he hated the works of the Nicolaitans, the teaching in their works. We're not clear what the issues are, but uh, it seems very similar to the Balaam issues. Very similar. We know it was a teaching and a system of living that, were, that was not orthodox and that Jesus hated. He hated it. It was destroying him, destroying God's people, and destroying the church. The clear, simple response of Jesus is repent, repent. And the promise to overcome is a hidden man, a white stone. Jesus is the manna come down from heaven, John chapter 6. He's the one who, who, who nourishes us, and so he promises the fullness of himself to those who overcome. The, the third of these letters is to the Christian fellowship of Tyra Tyra. Tyra, Tyra. Keep putting an extra R there. It's Tyra, Tyra. Verses 18 to 29. Let's hear these verses. To the angel of the church in Tyra, Tyra, write the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Sounds very similar to the picture in in, in, in chapter 1. I know your works, verse 19, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of their works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. To the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This city's character was a very small, working-class city. There was high quality, lots of high quality manufacturing going on there. There were powerful guilds. In fact, uh, in Acts chapter 16, verse 14, Lydia, the seller of purple, you might recall, she came from this town, Thyatira. She was a businesswoman. She sold purple dye, one of the many products that were produced in this city. There's a kind of a strong cohesion 
in that kind of a productive environment, a strong momentum, a strong cohesion culturally. It can, it can be very healthy, but um, sometimes that uh, strong culture of, of, of this kind of manufacturing uh, 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 kind of city, it can slip into the need to, uh, for bribery, for graft, for shady practices, uh, to, to prosper in that kind of a city with a strong union presence, uh, sometimes you have to go along to get along. You know what I'm talking about? To, to, to participate in the, in the activities, in the, even the, the great orgies that occurred in that city or experience not only extreme ridicule, but extreme less business productivity because you won't go along. That's the challenge that the believers at Thyatira had to compromise. It was a daily struggle for these brothers and sisters. Their strength is in verse 19. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. I know. It's like they are growing healthy church with a history and with a reputation of faithfulness to the Lord. You know, there's one word missing, though, in that list of love, faith, service, patience. It's the word holiness. Holiness. That's missing. And that's their challenge as the passage moves on. In First Kings, there's a story of Ahab and Jezebel. Ahab the king and Jezebel the wife. And, and uh, how they took Israel down uh, the wrong path. And th- there's a woman here in, in this city of Thyatira, and maybe her little name was Jezebel, or maybe she's like Jezebel. We don't know. But, but, but he uses that, that, that name. Now, let me say this about, about the woman that he talks about here before we. You know, her problem was not her gender. I don't believe her problem was her gender, it was not the fact that as a woman she was teaching. God gives gifts to women, and they can teach, and they should teach. As, as 1 Timothy states, they're not to teach having authority over men in 1 Timothy chapter 2, but, 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 but uh, uh, th- th- those who hold biblical interpretations comparing Scripture with Scripture, we seek to maintain that understanding. Uh, but, but also, we know that women can and should be teachers. So we encourage the uses of, of women's gifts of teaching in the church, under the authority of the elders. So, so Jezebel's issue was not she was a woman, as some might think. Her issue is what she was teaching. And what she's teaching is the teaching of Balaam. The same thing. Look at what it says. Eating food sacrificed to idols. Sexual immorality. The same thing that, was, that, was, that, was, that the teachers uh, uh, previously in, in, in Pergamon work were, were doing. It is not that she was a woman. It's what she was teaching. And we're, we're talking about the Roman world of many gods and, and of idol temples where, where men w- would seek oneness with temple priestesses, thinking that it gave them oneness with the gods. But both praying and using food sacrifice to idols, to, to pagan gods, and, and, and the, the sexual behavior that was associated with that, that mingling. That's what's going on, and it was a constant issue in the, in the early church. You might recall, we don't have time to look at Acts chapter 15 or Romans chapter 14 or 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10. This was a constant perpetual problem. All those passages address the complex issues that they face and that we still face in some way. 
I want to at least step back right now and say something that's quite obvious from the New Testament. If we look at the New Testament. If we declare and profess and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, then that statement should have a profound implication on our lives. Shouldn't the Lordship of Christ have an impact at the kitchen table where we eat and in the bedroom our moral life? Our basic lifestyle, our value choices, our moral decisions should be challenged by the one we claim to be our master. But somehow we balk at letting that happen, letting him be master in these very basic areas. And I marvel that so many people think that God has no business addressing them in those areas. A good, loving, caring father cares about your life. Knowing how intensely they were tempted, listen to Jesus' words, hold fast, just hold fast. He understands the environment, and he understands your environment, our environment. He has a promise to overcomers. He will give them authority and rulership. They will experience the morning star. They will dominate. They will rule. The morning star, Revelation later, the bright morning star is Jesus. The morning star, the one, that star that shines in the midst of darkness, and they knew darkness, but in that darkness, there would be one who would shine, the Lord Jesus Christ, and they would experience him in fullness. So we're seeing the word that was specifically to these three churches. Now there's a, in this passage, there's a word for us. I want to look at, just looking, stepping back, looking at these passages, there's some words for us that we want to do in the moments remaining. We have a church that 37 years has had a mission and vision of faithfulness to God in this, in this community. And how do you describe our church to, to people? How do, when people say, what's your church like? What do you say? Do you have a one sentence, a one paragraph description of our church? Think about it. How would Jesus describe our church? How would the Lord Jesus describe our church, Faith Christian Fellowship? Based on the kind of things that we see are important to him in these verses, I have some thoughts. Here's some thoughts. First of all, the first one is, be faithful. Be faithful in doing, in doing good works despite weariness. That's his word. That's what Jesus would say to us. Be faithful in doing good works despite weariness. It's been said that healthy believers rest, uh, the, the Christ, healthy Christianity rests on, on a discipleship, uh, on, on, on kind of a, a three-pronged stool. I have a stool here. We have that, that picture of that stool. There it is. A, a, a three-pronged stool of, of a... Of a, of a uh, of head, hands, and heart. Head is sound doctrine, sound thinking about the, about the word of God, about the Lord, about life. Um, hands is, is the good deeds that flow from our lives. And heart is a genuine piety, a love for God and a love for him and his word. They're, they're doctrinalists, pietists, and activists in the church. Now, two important things here. Only Jesus Christ himself maintains these in a perfect balance. You've ever been in a, in a chair where one of the legs is a little short and you're in, it's imbalanced? Well, that's each of our lives, none of us is totally balanced. Only Jesus. But the second thing I want you to understand is that a healthy church needs people who, are who, 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 who have strengths in these three areas. A healthy church has people with strengths in these two areas. I want to break this down a little bit. First is the, the head. 
These are, these are doctors. These are people who are thinkers. These are people who are very, very aware of theology and doctrine and sound teaching. And that they want to, uh, to understand the scriptures and make sure that everybody understands the scriptures and believes them. They want to go into the deep doctrines of scripture. They say, like the writer of Hebrews, you know, it's time that we leave the milk and go to the meat. That they may sometimes not even give folk space to grow who are still trying to figure out the basics. That, those are doctrinalists. And we need you. We need those who will make sure that we're maintaining a commitment to the scriptures. There's often such a desire to reach out to lost people that we compromise basic needs in Scripture. Doctrinalists in the house will toss the flag and say, wait a minute. No, stick with the gospel. Don't compromise God's word. Second is the heart, the, the pietists. And these are the ones who feel, they feel, and they focus on the importance of holy living for Christ and being devoted to prayer and devoted to fasting. And they really, really, really just want to love Jesus better and want everybody to love Jesus more. And that's great. They want everyone to worship and experience his presence. They're the ones who say, you know, that song was great, but yeah, you just cut it off too short. I was just getting into it. Those are the, 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 the feelers, the pietists. And they think, well, we're paying too much attention to, to reaching out to others. Let's think about ourselves and, and our own walks with God. We need pietists, don't we? We need them. Every healthy church needs people who, who want to focus on piety, on living for Christ and being his person. It keeps us from falling off the edges in some very important ways. And the third crowd, the hands crowd. The hands, these are the ones who are doers. They're the ones who say, we, the, the, the Christian faith, mature discipleship is getting out there and doing things for God. And we at faith, Christian fellowship, have a reputation of being an activist church, don't we? From the beginning, we've been a church that wanted to assist the poor, and wanted to do something about the educational crisis, wanted to do something about children that are not parented well. Youth ministry has always been on the forefront of who we are. It's fantastic. We heard a fantastic story just this week from Erin, a testimony from Erin. Um, <clears throat> here here's what she says. Reuben and I had the privilege, the picture here, Ruben, the privilege of attending the eighth grade graduation of J.J. Powell today. He's been a learning center student since he was in first grade. He's been attending Faith Christian Fellowship Youth Group during middle school. His sister also has participated both in the Learning Center and Youth Group. We have a long-standing relationship with his mother, Tiana, who is awesome. Today, we didn't just celebrate his middle school graduation, but that, that he was the valedictorian of his class and gave a speech today. He started with us when he was six, maybe seven, struggling in math and reading, facing basic obstacles every student has. And look how far he has come and how much he's accomplished. God is good, unquote. So Aaron's words. And so what we have there, the youth group, you know, Bible fellowship encounters in, in the learning center, the academic and the Bible and their mentoring, all working together for years, for, for many years in this young man's life. He, his sister, his mother, connected to this body. God says, continue in your good works. Don't get weary. Holistic discipleship is, is a very important part of who we are. We, we, we learned just another, uh, in terms of our connection with, with our community, um, there's often these prayer walks 
just walking and praying with other believers uh, about our community. There's, the next one is going to be this Friday, um, and it's going to kick off at 5 p.m. at Willow Avenue Park. Um, and you can talk to Emily more about that, but Friday will be the first of the summer prayer walks. Doing works, doing good works, and God, God would say, I, I know that, I see that, and, 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 I, and, and, and I'm, I'm happy that you're doing that. He's very aware. He would say, don't stop doing those things. Don't get weary. Continue to do those things. Don't just be a hearer of the word, but be a doer. But I also believe that if, if Jesus were giving us his fatherly counsel, he would exhort us to not only maintain our commitment to activist deeds from loving, caring hearts, but continue to build upon that history. And more importantly, make sure that we do these things from hearts filled with the joy of the gospel. Do these things that, that express genuine faith while growing in our doctrinal clarity and our commitment to personal piety. The, the second thing here is to be alert. Be alert. Be alert to diligently and courageously challenge false teaching and immoral living despite the loud voices calling for toleration that are around us. And we see that in, in the Pergamum and Thyatira and the pressure they had. There's a, and there, we live in a, in a society where there's what I would call the cult of toleration, this un, unbiblical understanding of toleration, what it means to, to, to tolerate other people, what they do and what they believe um, there's a kind of toleration that says if, that we may disagree and remain friends as we think through issues. I think that's good, and that's godly, and that's biblical. We can disagree, but still be friends. But there's now a kind of toleration that says, if we disagree, you're my enemy. We need to we be careful how we treat other people, even when we disagree about the most important things in the world. Well, we don't have time to talk more about, about that, but let me move on. The third, the third thing is to be expectant, to be expectant, because the faithful will be rewarded. Be expectant, faith Christian, because God will reward those who overcome. Despite fears, despite doubts, God, the gospel promises are true. Hold on, endure, persevere, encourage one another to wait for his coming. Rest in his promises. And wait expectantly. Now, Jesus exhorts us to remain faithful to his gospel, to his holy word, to his name, to his holy calling, to him, to be alert, to be expectant that his promises are true. And each of these messages to these churches ends with an exhortation that is similar to the one that Jesus gave in the gospels. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is a fervent plea to really listen and hear and be alert and be attentive to and sense what the Spirit of God is saying to you. And that's for each one of us. What's the Spirit saying to you individually? What's He saying to us as a church? What's He saying to our particular household or family? What would Jesus say that we need specifically to address? My dad gave me lots of advice growing up in life, and I've done my best to walk in his wise footsteps, and I've learned the toughest lessons were the most important ones. It was true for me, and I believe it's true still for us. Back in 1976, I was just a young kid out of college. I was accepted on the staff of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. In my first year, I went to the staff training that summer, that first summer, 1976. I'll never forget the late Dr. John Alexander, his lecture 
on the history of student ministry and university Christian fellowship. He went all the way back to 1844, <laughs> the days before university, and a man named George Williams, who's the founder of the YMCA. We now know it as the Y. You, you, you ever seen the YMCA? That's Tim. You ever seen the, the logo? You, you look at that Bible, John 17, 21 that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The YMCA, founded in a a movement that was, back in the 1960s, it was called the the Muscular Christianity Movement, where there was a a desire to show that the Christian faith wasn't wimpy, it was for strong people. (laughs) And so the, the Y was created in that kind of an environment, that kind of a context. Maybe you, you've heard of a man named James Naismith. He, he, uh, he was the, the man who actually created the game of basketball. He, 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 he created that while studying at the YMCA International Training School in Springfield, Massachusetts in 1891. He was from Canada. And he invented the game of basketball. He was looking for an indoor game that was not as rough as football. <laughs> They were playing football indoors, and it was getting hurt, a lot, a lot of injuries. So he combined his understanding of soccer and football and lacrosse and created a game using a peach basket that we now know as basketball that quickly became famous as an indoor winter sport. Later in life, he was finishing medical school and recruited by the University of Kansas. They, they were seeking an athletic coach and a director for their 650-seat chapel, which students attended every morning. Can you imagine a, 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 a state college where there was mandatory chapel? <laughs> this is a different day, folks. Naismith was in, ideally prepared for this post and was recommended to the university. Here's what it said in the recommendation. He said, in the adventure of basketball, a medical doctor, a Presbyterian minister, a teetotaler, an all-around athlete, a non-smoker, an owner of a vocabulary without cuss words. That was, his, that was his resume. I love it. Dr. John Alexander in 1976 was reminding me and other university new staff of what's called mission drift. Mission drift. That organizations can start well, but lose their original vision and their original passion. And like a gentle father, Dr. Alexander exhorted us to make sure that InterVarsity always stayed committed to the gospel of salvation through grace in Jesus Christ, committed to the scriptures as the word of God, the perfect word of God, and committed to good works empowered by the spirit of God that flow from a vibrant relationship with Jesus. What will history say of faith Christian fellowship in this generation? Did we drift into a social church? Or, 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 or did we get so hyper about theology that we'd stop seeking lost people and stopped our social uh, uh, interests? Will we get so concerned about a culture gone mad that we'll stop seeking to engage but hide into pietism? Or will we continue to seek to be a healthy, balanced church holding to the gospel following Jesus and his word, trusting the Holy Spirit to keep our lamp burning brightly, helping us to be a lampstand that points people to him who alone is the light of the world. Faithful to his gospel, faithful to his holy word, 
faithful to his name, faithful to his holy calling, faithful to him. He that has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray.